Chapter Two of The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter Two Attention. How do you rank in mental ability, and how effective are your mind's grasp and power? The answer that must be given to these questions will depend not more on your native endowment than on your skill in using attention. 1. Nature of Attention It is by attention that we gather and mass our mental energy upon the critical and important points in our thinking. In the last chapter we saw that consciousness is not distributed evenly over the whole field, but piled up now on this object of thought, now on that, in obedience to interest or necessity. The concentration of the mind's energy on one object of thought is attention. The Nature of Attention Everyone knows what it is to attend, the story so fascinating that we cannot leave it, the critical points in a game, the interesting sermon or lecture, the sparkling conversation, all these compel our attention. So completely is our mind's energy centered on them and withdrawn from other things that we are scarcely aware of what is going on about us. We are also familiar with another kind of attention, for we all have read the dull story, watched the slow game, listened to the lecture or sermon that drags, and taken part in conversation that was a bore. We gave these things our attention, but only with effort. Our mind's energy seemed to center on anything rather than the matter in hand. A thousand objects from outside enticed us away, and it required the frequent mental jerk to bring us to the subject in hand. And when brought back to our thought problem, we felt the constant tug of mind to be free again. Normal consciousness always in a state of attention. But this very effort of the mind to free itself from one object of thought, that it may busy itself with another, is because attention is solicited by this other. Some object in our field of consciousness is always exerting an appeal for attention, and to attend to one thing is always to attend away from a multitude of other things upon which the thought might rest. We may therefore say that attention is constantly selecting in our stream of thought those aspects that are to receive emphasis and consideration. From moment to moment it determines the points at which our mental energy shall be centered. 2. The Effects of Attention Attention makes its object clear and definite. Whatever attention centers upon stands out sharp and clear in consciousness. Whether it be a bit of memory, an air castle, a sensation from an aching tooth, the reasoning on an algebraic formula, a choice which we are making, the setting of an emotion. Whatever be the object to which we are attending, that object is illumined and made to stand out from its fellows as the one prominent thing in the mind's eye while the attention rests on it. It is like the one building which the searchlight picks out among a city full of buildings and lights up, while the remainder are left in the semi-light or in darkness. Attention measures mental efficiency. In a state of attention, the mind may be likened to the rays of the sun which have been passed through a burning glass. You may let all the rays which can pass through your window pane fall hour after hour upon the paper lying on your desk, and no marked effects follow. But let the same amount of sunlight be passed through a lens and converged to a point the size of your pencil point, and the paper will at once burst into flame. What the diffused rays could not do in hours or in ages is now accomplished in seconds. Likewise, the mind, allowed to scatter over many objects, can accomplish but little. We may sit and dream away an hour or a day over a page or a problem without securing results. 
but let us call in our wits from their wool-gathering and buckle down to it with all our might withdrawing our thoughts from everything else but this one thing and concentrating our mind on it more can now be accomplished in minutes than before in hours nay things which could not be accomplished at all before now become possible again the mind may be compared to a steam engine which is constructed to run at a certain pressure of steam say one hundred and fifty pounds to the square inch of boiler surface once i ran such an engine and well i remember a morning during my early apprenticeship when the foreman called for power to run some of the lighter machinery while my steam gauge registered but seventy-five pounds surely i thought if one hundred and fifty pounds will run all this machinery seventy-five pounds should run half of it so i opened the valve but the powerful engine could do but little more than turn its own wheels and refused to do the required work not until the pressure had risen above one hundred pounds could the engine perform half the work which it could at one hundred and fifty pounds and so with our mind if it is meant to do its best work under a certain degree of concentration it cannot in a given time do half the work with half the attention further there will be much which it cannot do at all unless working under full pressure we shall not be overstating the case if we say that as attention increases in arithmetical ratio mental efficiency increases in geometrical ratio it is in large measure a difference in the power of attention which makes one man a master in thought and achievement and another his humble follower one often hears it said that genius is but the power of sustained attention and this statement possesses a large element of truth three how we attend someone has said that if our attention is properly trained we should be able to look at the point of a cambric needle for half an hour without winking but this is a false idea of attention the ability to look at the point of a cambric needle for half an hour might indicate a very laudable power of concentration but the process instead of enlightening us concerning the point of the needle would result in our passing into a hypnotic state voluntary attention to any one object can be sustained for but a brief time a few seconds at best it is essential that the object change that we turn it over and over incessantly and consider its various aspects and relations sustained voluntary attention is thus a repetition of successive efforts to bring back the object to the mind then the subject grows and develops it is living not dead attention of relating activity when we are attending strongly to one object of thought it does not mean that consciousness sits staring vacantly at this one object but rather that it uses it as a central core of thought and thinks into relation with this object the things which belong with it in working out some mathematical solution the central core is the principle upon which the solution is based and concentration in this case consists in thinking the various conditions of the problem in relation to this underlying principle in the accompanying diagram figure four let a be the central core of some object of thought say a patch of cloud in a picture and let a b c d etc be the related facts or the size shape color etc of the cloud the arrows indicate the passing of our thoughts from cloud to related fact or from fact to cloud and from related fact to related fact as long as these related facts lead back to the cloud each time that long we are attending to the cloud and thinking about it it is when our thought fails to go back that we wander in our attention then we leave a b c d etc which are related to the cloud and flying off to x y and z 
finally bring up heaven knows where. The rhythms of attention. Attention works in rhythms. This is to say that it never maintains a constant level of concentration for any considerable length of time, but regularly ebbs and flows. The explanation of this rhythmic action would take us too far afield at this point. When we remember, however, our entire organism works within a great system of rhythms, hunger, thirst, sleep, fatigue, and many others, it is easy to see that the same law may apply to attention. The rhythms of attention vary greatly, the fluctuations often being only a few seconds apart for certain simple sensations, and probably a much greater distance apart for the more complex process of thinking. The seeming variation in the sound of a distant waterfall, now loud and now faint, is caused by the rhythm of attention and easily allows us to measure the rhythm for this particular sensation. 4. Points of Failure in Attention Lack of Concentration there are two chief types of inattention whose danger threatens every person. First, we may be thinking about the right things, but not thinking hard enough. We lack mental pressure. Outside thoughts which have no relation to the subject in hand may not trouble us much, but we do not attack our problem with vim. The current in our stream of consciousness is moving too slowly. We do not gather up all our mental forces and mass them on the subject before us in a way that means victory. Our thoughts may be sufficiently focused, but they fail to set fire. It is like focusing the sun's rays while an eclipse is on. They lack energy. They will not kindle the paper after they have passed through the lens. This kind of attention means mental dawdling. It means inefficiency. For the individual, it means defeat in life's battles. For the nation, it means mediocrity and stagnation. A college professor said to his faithful but poorly prepared class, Judging from your worn and tired appearance, young people, you are putting in twice too many hours on study. At this commendation, the class brightened up visibly. But, he continued, judging from your preparation, you do not study quite half hard enough. Happy is the student who, starting in on his lesson rested and fresh, can study with such concentration that an hour of steady application will leave him mentally exhausted and limp. That is one hour of triumph for him, no matter what else he may have accomplished or failed to accomplish during the time. He can afford an occasional pause for rest, for difficulties will melt rapidly away before him. He possesses one key to successful achievement. Mental wandering. Second, we may have good mental power and be able to think hard and efficiently on any one point, but lack the power to think in a straight line. Every stray thought that comes along is a will-o'-the-wisp to lead us away from the subject in hand and into lines of thought not relating to it. Who has not started in to think on some problem, and after a few moments been surprised to find himself miles away from the topic upon which he started? Or who has not read down a page, and turning to the next, found that he did not know a word on the preceding page, his thoughts having wandered away, his eyes only going through the process of reading? Instead of sticking to the A, B, C, D, etc. of our topic and relating them all up to A, thereby reaching a solution of the problem, we often jump at once to X, Y, Z and find ourselves far afield with all possibility of a solution gone. We may have brilliant thoughts about X, Y, Z, but they are not related to anything in particular, and so they pass from us and are gone, lost in oblivion because they are not attached to something permanent. Such a thinker is at the mercy of circumstances, following blindly the leadings of trains of thought which are his master instead of his servant, and which lead him anywhere or nowhere without let or hindrance from him. 
his consciousness moves rapidly enough and with enough force but it is like a ship without a helm starting for the intellectual port a by way of a b c d he is mentally shipwrecked at last on the rocks x y z and never reaches harbor fortunate is he who can shut out intruding thoughts and think in a straight line even with mediocre ability he may accomplish more by his thinking than the brilliant thinker who is constantly having his mental train wrecked by stray thoughts which slip in on his right of way five types of attention the three types of attention attention may be secured in three ways one it is demanded by some sudden or intense sensory stimulus or insistent idea or two it follows interest or three it is compelled by the will if it comes in the first way as from a thunderclap or a flash of light or from the persistent attempt of some unsought idea to secure entrance into the mind it is called involuntary attention this form of attention is of so little importance comparatively in our mental life that we shall not discuss it further if attention comes in the second way following interest it is called non-voluntary or spontaneous attention if in the third compelled by the will voluntary or active attention non-voluntary attention has its motive in some object external to consciousness or else follows a more or less uncontrolled current of thought which interests us voluntary attention is controlled from within we decide what we shall attend to instead of letting interesting objects of thought determine it for us interest and non-voluntary attention in non-voluntary attention the environment largely determines what we shall attend to all that we have to do with directing this kind of attention is in developing certain lines of interest and then the interesting things attract attention the things we see and hear and touch and taste and smell the things we like the things we do and hope to do these are the determining factors in our mental life so long as we are giving non-voluntary attention our attention follows the beckoning of these things as the needle of the magnet it is no effort to attend to them but rather the effort would be to keep from attending to them who does not remember reading a story perhaps a forbidden one so interesting that when mother called up the stairs for us to come down to attend to some duty we replied yes in a minute then went on reading we simply could not stop at that place the minute lengthens into ten and another call startles us yes i'm coming we turn just one more leaf and are lost again at last comes a third call in tones so imperative it cannot be longer ignored and we lay the book down but open to the place where we left off and where we soon hope to begin further to unravel the delightful mystery was it an effort to attend to the reading ah no it took the combined force of our will and of mother's authority to drag the attention away this is non-voluntary attention left to itself then attention simply obeys natural laws and follows the line of least resistance by far the larger portion of our attention is of this type thought often runs on hour after hour when we are not conscious of effort or struggle to compel us to cease thinking about this thing and begin thinking about that indeed it may be doubted whether this is not the case with some persons for days at a time instead of hours the things that present themselves to the mind are the things which occupy it the character of the thought is determined by the character of our interests it is this fact which makes it vitally necessary that our interests shall be broad and pure if our thoughts are to be of this type it is not enough that we have the strength to drive from our minds a wrong or impure thought which seeks entrance to stand guard as a policeman over our thoughts 
to see that no unworthy one enters requires too much time and energy our interests must be of such a nature as to lead us away from the field of unworthy thoughts if we are to be free from their tyranny the will and voluntary attention in voluntary attention there is a conflict either between the will and interest or between the will and the mental inertia or laziness which has to be overcome before we can think with any degree of concentration interest says follow this line which is easy and attractive or which requires but little effort follow the line of least resistance will says quit that line of dalliance and ease and takes this harder way which i direct cease the line of least resistance and take the one of greatest resistance when daydreams in castles in spain attempt to lure you from your lessons refuse to follow shut out these vagabond thoughts and stick to your task when intellectual inertia deadens your thought and clogs your mental stream throw it off and court forceful effort if wrong or impure thoughts seek entrance to your mind close and lock your mental doors to them if thoughts of desire try to drive out thoughts of duty be heroic and insist that thoughts of duty shall have right of way in short see that you are the master of your thinking and do not let it always be directed without your consent by influences outside of yourself it is just at this point that the strong will wins victory and the weak will breaks down between the ability to control one's thoughts and the inability to control them lies all the difference between right actions and wrong actions between withstanding temptation and yielding to it between an inefficient purposeless life and a life of purpose and endeavor between success and failure for we act in accordance with those things which our thought rests upon suppose two lines of thought represented by a and b respectively lie before you that a leads to a course of action difficult or unpleasant but necessary to success or duty and that b leads to a course of action easy or pleasant but fatal to success or duty which course will you follow the rugged path of duty or the easier one of pleasure the answer depends almost wholly if not entirely on your power of attention if your will is strong enough to pull your thoughts away from the fatal but attractive b and hold them resolutely on the less attractive a then a will dictate your course of action and you will respond to the call for endeavor self-denial and duty but if your thoughts break away from the domination of your will and allow the beckoning of your interests alone then b will dictate your course of action and you will follow the leading of ease and pleasure for our actions are finally and irrevocably dictated by the things we think about not really different kinds of attention it is not to be understood however from what has been said that there are really different kinds of attention all attention denotes an active or dynamic phase of consciousness the difference is rather in the way we secure attention whether it is demanded by sudden stimulus coaxed from us by interesting objects of thought without effort on our part or compelled by force of will to desert the more interesting and take the direction which we dictate six improving the power of attention while attention is no doubt partly a natural gift yet there is probably no power of the mind more susceptible to training than is attention and with attention as with every other power of body and mind the secret of its development lies in its use stated briefly the only way to train attention is by attending no amount of theorizing or resolving can take the place of practice in the actual process of attending making different kinds of attention reinforce each other 
A very close relationship and interdependence exists between non-voluntary and voluntary attention. It would be impossible to hold our attention by sheer force of will on objects which were forever devoid of interest. Likewise, the blind following of our interests and desires would finally lead to shipwreck in all our lives. Each kind of attention must support and reinforce the other. The lessons, the sermons, the lectures, and the books in which we are most interested, and hence to which we attend non-voluntarily and with the least effort and fatigue, are the ones out of which, other things being equal, we get the most and remember the best and longest. On the other hand, there are sometimes lessons and lectures and books, and many things besides, which are not intensely interesting, but which should be attended to nevertheless. It is at this point that the will must step in and take command. If it has not the strength to do this, it is in so far a weak will, and steps should be taken to develop it. We are to keep the faculty of effort alive in us by a little gratuitous exercise every day. We are to be systematically heroic to the little points of everyday life and experience. We are not to shrink from tasks because they are difficult or unpleasant. Then, when the test comes, we shall not find ourselves unnerved and untrained, but shall be able to stand in the evil day. The habit of attention. Finally, one of the chief things in training the attention is to form the habit of attending. This habit is to be formed only by attending whenever and wherever the proper thing to do is to attend, whether in work, in play, in making fishing flies, in preparing for an examination, in courting a sweetheart, in reading a book. The lesson or the sermon or the lecture may not be very interesting, but if they are to be attended to at all, our rule should be to attend to them completely and absolutely, not by fits and starts, now drifting away and now jerking ourselves back, but all the time. And furthermore, the ones who will deliberately do this will often find the dull and uninteresting task become more interesting. But if it never becomes interesting, he is at least forming a habit which will be invaluable to him through life. On the other hand, the one who fails to attend except when his interest is captured, who never exerts effort to compel attention, is forming a habit which will be the bane of his thinking until a stream of thought shall end. 7. Problems in Observation and Introspection 1. Which fatigues you more, to give attention of the non-voluntary type or the voluntary? Which can you maintain longer? Which is the more pleasant and agreeable to give? Under which can you accomplish more? What bearing have these facts on teaching? 2. Try to follow for one or two minutes the wave in your consciousness, and then describe the course taken by your attention. 3. Have you observed one class alert in attention, and another lifeless and inattentive? Can you explain the causes lying back of this difference? Estimate the relative amount of work accomplished under the two conditions. 4. What distractions have you observed in the schoolroom tending to break up attention? 5. Have you seen pupils inattentive from lack of 1. Change 2. Pure air 3. Enthusiasm on the part of the teacher 4. Fatigue 5. Ill health 6. Have you noticed a difference in the habit of attention in different pupils? Have you noticed the same thing for whole schools or rooms? 7. Do you know of children too much given to daydreaming? Are you? 8. Have you seen a teacher wrap the desk for attention? What type of attention was secured? Does it pay? 9. Have you observed any instance in which pupils' lack of attention should be blamed on the teacher? 
If so, what was the fault? The remedy. 10. Visit a schoolroom or a recitation, and then write an account of the types and degrees of attention you observed. Try to explain the factors responsible for any failures in attention, and also those responsible for the good attention shown. End of chapter 2. Recording by Colleen McMahon.